This is RVA Trial Lawyers, Richmond's Trial Lawyer Podcast. Trial lawyers do not become great overnight. It takes persistence, a relentless work ethic, a willingness to learn from mistakes, a burning passion for the craft, an authentic self, and the courage and vulnerability to enter the arena time and again. Those who become great trial lawyers also become great people. Through their work, they grapple with the realities of the human condition and, in the process, cultivate character, principle, integrity, leadership, strength, compassion, and perseverance. RBA Trial Lawyers exist for Richmond's trial lawyers. Through this podcast, we hope to learn from them, support them, connect them, inspire them, and preserve their work for future trial lawyers. We have a very special guest with us today. Once Sharif reached out to start RVA Trial Lawyers, one of the main reasons was to preserve the voices of the greats. And there's no greater voice that I could think of as a prosecutor than the voice of Greg Cooley. Dr. Cooley, how are you? I am way better than I deserve to be. Dr. Cooley, there is a lot we're going to cover, and then we're going to get to the Beltway sniper case. But before we go there, we would like to take you back to up 64 West, back to Harrisonburg, and to the Shenandoah Valley area. And you started as a high school teacher. You, you were a high school teacher five years prior to going to law school. And a few things about Craig Cooley. Craig Cooley has handled over 600 murder cases in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Greg Cooley, if you ask any prosecutor, any attorney, who is the to-go-to in the Commonwealth? It is Greg Cooley. Everyone praises Greg Cooley except one person, and that is Greg Cooley himself. Dr. Cooley, welcome. Let's start with your, at least in Harrisonburg, and tell us a bit about you. Well, I was actually born in Richmond, but then in the course of my life, my father was, was in the Navy. He was on the staff of Admiral Kirk, not the one known for the Star Trek, but who was head of the American Naval Forces at D-Day. And when my dad graduated or came back, he came back after the Navy and went to University of Richmond and then became principal at, at Cape Charles High School, which no longer exists. And then ultimately got hired at Harrisonburg as the principal there. And so we moved to Harrisonburg. Now, both of my parents were from a small town called Strasburg, which is north of that in the valley near Winchester. But I grew up in Harrisonburg. It was a wonderful place to, to grow up. It was a small city and I think benefited me greatly. It gave me an opportunity to grow and gain some confidence in myself and, and to kind of plan out a future. Um, my father, being a principal, always told us that we had a debt to pay back to the community, a debt to pay back to society, which I believed then and I believe now. And I thought teaching was a way to do it. My dad and me not to grow old as a classroom teacher, that it was extremely difficult to keep the enthusiasm. I ended up coming where he had gotten his master's to the University of Richmond. So I left Harrisonburg at that point in time. What year did you leave Harrisonburg and come back? To I graduated from high school in 1965 and came to Richmond, graduated undergraduate at 69, 1969, started teaching high school at Thomas Jefferson High School here in the city. Great experience for me for a variety of reasons because we were a tremendous academic school. We had 16 PhDs on a high school faculty. I was not one of them. And then the second year I was there, was the desegregation. So the student body population, at least in terms of complexion, changed greatly. And I probably got the best education I could get in terms of learning about the differences and the, to appreciate the differences and the benefits of, of having diversity in the people around you and the people that you worked with and taught in that case. So it was a great opportunity for me. I'm sure I learned more than any of the students in the five years I taught. I didn't plan it so perfectly. It just worked out that the five years is kind of what my dad had suggested and that I thought was 
just about he was accurate, you begin to lose your enthusiasm at some point in that many classes. And I taught a variety of histories and government and economics. And so I stopped and I had to choose. I had a second life that involved tennis. I was heavily involved in tennis, played at the University of Richmond. And it's an important part of my life. And at the same time I was deciding to go to law school, I got an invitation to come and be the plebe coach at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. And I had to weigh which direction my life was going to go. My wife was in nursing school. She did not want to leave Richmond. And so I opted to go to law school. So we owe it to Mrs. Cooley then. We owe it to Mrs. Cooley, good or bad. (laughs) What year did you graduate law school? I finished law school in 77. And sir, what was it that took you to law school? I'd always wanted to go into law. The simple reason is I watched To Kill a Mockingbird. I didn't read the book. I just watched To Kill a Mockingbird. And I was so moved by somebody that would devote their efforts to the defense of the downtrodden and the powerless people. And I I thought I was the only person that was that compelling to, but I saw a interview of Atticus Finch and who he really was, and he said, not a day goes by, and he was alive then, of course, but not a day would go by that somebody didn't come up and say, either I went to law school, became a lawyer, my son or my daughter went to law school because of your role as Atticus Finch. So I'm not alone in, in that motivation or that what inspired me to go, I don't think. And did you think that you would get into criminal defense work? When they had me fill out what I wanted to be, I put down prosecutor. And uh, I don't know why, because I liked Atticus Finch, but I did. The lowest grade I got in law school, and I take great pleasure in tweaking Professor Bassigal, who's known to all of us, but he gave me my lowest grade in law school, and that was in criminal law. (laughs) So he was probably more accurate than I was, but anyway. (laughs) And so... Atticus Finch led you to law school. You make it out of law school. Did you just set up a shingle? Tell us a bit about right after law school. How What got you into criminal defense? I actually sat down, and when I went the first day of law school, I sat down with two other folks, and one is now deceased, but the three of us decided at the beginning of law school that we would come out, we'd prepare all three years and come out and start our own firm, which is what we did. It was Canfield, Brown, and Cooley. I was properly third in, in line. And we did that. We So when we finished, we came out and started our own firm. And a couple of years after you graduated, you got your first capital case. I did. The, you asked, how did I get into criminal defense work? I was the first one of two law clerks to the Richmond Circuit Court judges. And so I worked with the three. At that time, there were three Circuit Court judges. And I'm not sure why they picked me, but they did. And so I spent the, while we were finishing up our second year, and then throughout the summer during my, between second and third year, I was a clerk to the circuit court judges. They primarily used me to write briefs and prep them on issues relating to criminal defense or criminal prosecution. When I graduated, they gave me a quick start they would appoint me on some cases that ordinarily I think I would not have been appointed on. And they gave me some opportunities to be seen, to work with some very talented people. Judge Melvin Hughes and I did the first capital cases. There was a moratorium briefly on capital cases because the statute had become far too broad and too many people were qualifying for a death penalty. And the Supreme Court said, wait a minute, you got to get this under control. So we didn't have executions for a brief period of time. When it restarted, Melvin Hughes and I were appointed on cases known as the Briley brothers. And Melvin and I were appointed on the oldest of the Briley brothers, Linwood. And that was a great learning experience. Melvin Hughes was a tremendous trial lawyer, became circuit court judge later. General District and then Circuit. <clears throat> so I had the benefit of learning from him. 500 
murder cases later to 2003, now closer to 600. 2003, you receive a call from a Fairfax court judge. Tell us a bit about that call. It was from Judge Jane Merrim Roush. She was a circuit court judge in Fairfax. And she called me and she said that she needed to appoint someone to represent the younger of the two people charged as the Beltway Snipers, Lee Boyd Malvo. She said she needed somebody with a lot of gray hair, with a lot of capital experience, and no ego. And I assured her that my lack of ego was well justified, <laughs> and it was. And she told me that she would have to, she would, if she announced that I was whoever was taking it, the media flow was going to be incredible that I had no concept of what was coming in terms of the media coverage in this case. And she gave me an opportunity to think about it. She said, you need to discuss this with your family because it's going to impact them. You're going to be basically setting aside your practice for a year. And it's pretty accurate in that. And she said, it's going to stress, put stress on you, your family, and they need to be part of the decision. So I took that opportunity. I did talk to my wife, who we're just past our 50th anniversary recently. And Congratulations. It, well, to me, marry a saint. That's my suggestion. If you marry a saint, marriage is much easier, and I did. So, But I went to her, and we talked about it, and she said, you know, if not you, who? I'd had probably more experience with a death penalty. I'd had 68 at that point in time death penalty cases, and not all of them went to trial, of course. And a number of them had been juveniles. So having a juvenile client facing a death penalty was not brand new for me. But I've had a particular passion about that because America was the last great country, the last really advanced country to give up the idea of executing people who were juveniles at the time of the offense. And the rest of the world looked at us like we were backward. And short, within a year after the Malvo decision, the jury was unanimous in the Malvo case. In not it, all, the, all we needed was one person in the, that case to vote against death, and he could not have been executed. But the jury came back unanimously against death and for life without parole. And I th probably credit that decision, the Malvo decision, the, the facts of the shootings and the deaths in the Malvo, and it's really the Mohammed case, but that the, the facts were so egregious that I think that the Supreme Court saw that if that was not something that a jury would elect to give a death penalty on, that perhaps we were past that and our mores had changed to a point where it could be properly considered cruel and unusual punishment. Let's talk about you accepting the appointment. After you reached back to Judge Roush and accepted the appointment, how did your life change from that moment on, at <laughs> least for that year? It, it was a major change because I was driving back and forth to Fairfax until we, the trial ultimately was transferred to Chesapeake. And then we began to drive back and forth. During We stayed in Norfolk for the Chesapeake trial. But it was a very different type of practice because I have a volume practice and lot of, lots of cases. Suddenly it was a few cases and this one big case that spending most of our time on, had the good fortune to get to work with excellent lawyers and that were already in place in some cases. And Judge Roush was determined that these trials were going to be fair. The federal attorney general basically told the state prosecutors whatever they needed, whatever amount of money, whatever resources, the federal government would pay it and underwrite their expenses and how they approached it. So they had everything. And Judge Roush was more than generous in setting up a budget for us to be able to bring people in. We had 53 witnesses. The great majority of them were from out of the country. 
and securing witnesses that you can't subpoena because they're out of the country, getting people who, in some cases, rarely walked across the island on which they, or traveled across the island on which they lived, to get them arranged, get them on a plane, to get the credentials to be able to fly into this country, to get them delivered properly to Chesapeake, get them from the plane to the hotel, take care of their needs at the hotel, get them to the trial when they're supposed to be there to testify, get them back to the hotel, back onto a plane and back home, feed them while they were here. All of that was a tremendous undertaking. And she gave us the, we, I'm not, I'm not suggesting all these people were elegantly taken care of, but they had what they needed was interesting because I think we had each of them got something like $27 a day for food. And when we literally put cash into a white envelope for each one of them. And I remember Lee's father, Mr. Malvo, we would stayed close to the, I think it's called the MacArthur Center, and it's a mall in the center of downtown Norfolk. And they had a food court, and we'd walk these people up in the night so they could get their food and such after the trial. And Mr. Malvo would take an apple and cut it into three slices, third, 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 third for breakfast, third for lunch, third for cost him a dollar. He pocketed $26, and he was here for like three or four days. He got back to Jamaica. He was much better off than he'd ever been, I expect. And he was a nice man, but that's how he handled the, his eating. How long did the trial last? We started on November 10th for the first day of trial, and we concluded on December 23rd. 17 people were killed. That's right. Your travels went farther than Fairfax and Chesapeake. You yes. talked about witnesses from out of state. Yes. Did you travel out of state? I traveled out of state to the, we had witnesses that were from Bellingham, Washington, from another city in Washington State. I'm speaking of. We had witnesses that were from Louisiana. Muhammad's family was from Louisiana. Our primary and probably most important witnesses, and all those witnesses were very important. I don't mean to suggest one was more valuable than others, but some of them had a broader awareness of who Lee was as a person. They were folks from Jamaica, and they were folks from Antigua. It would be hours if I told you the full story of what happened with Lee, but Lee did not know John Muhammad. He grew up in Jamaica to age 13. His mother was a very difficult personality, probably one of the most difficult I've ever dealt with. And she would leave Lee in Jamaica and leave him with a caretaker. And when she would leave, she'd go to another island to work, supposedly to send money back to take care of Lee. But these every family that she did this with would say, she never sent anything. We basically hosted Lee and took care of him. Some were wonderful people and great caretakers, and some were the reverse of that. And Lee wanted to go with his mother, and ultimately she would leave Jamaica and go to Antigua, and she took him with her, only then to meet this fellow named John Muhammad, who would make his living by forging documents to get people into the United States and travel with them. They would pay handsomely for him to make the documents, generate those, get them to the United States, and then he would fly back to Antigua. He had stolen, and that's exactly what he did, he stole his three children. He was married, separated, had visitation with his three children in Tacoma, Washington, his wife, met him to give him the children for the weekend, and he took them. They got on a plane and flew to Antigua, and she never saw him again until some years later when he ultimately brought them back to live in a mission in northern Washington State. And so he had his three children there in Antigua. Lee was taken by his mother to Antigua and abandoned there. He lived in a shack, literally a 
no no water, no running water, no no toiletry facilities. He lived in this shack, and he met the Muhammad children at school. And in the course of things, John Muhammad was a alpha male. He'd been a military person. He'd been twice court-martialed. One of his colleagues from the military came to testify that he had carried, and he had it in his wallet, a piece of paper that said, if I'm ever killed, look to John Muhammad. He would say that Muhammad threw a grenade into the a tent into his colleagues, one of the reasons that he ended up being, being court-martialed. But he was an alpha male, very, very into being good physical condition, a, a fanatic about it. And he would teach people martial arts, and he would do that adults, and they would pay. But he also would have kids there, and he would teach them. And he was a very Pied Piperish fellow. In fact, his wife ultimately came and testified for Lee. And she said that if John Muhammad went into a gymnasium full of children and sat a chair down in the middle of the gymnasium, that the children would line up to talk with him, that they would follow him and listen to him and do whatever he said. And he, his secret was he would listen to them. And he would listen and say, well, what's going on? What's your problem? What is it? Well, now, what do you think you could do about that? And he'd listen to him and say, okay, well, that, what about this? And, and he was very engaging. But he had a, they had the kids would come out at like 7 in the morning before school every day. And he would start them running a route that they had designed and around the neighborhood in Antigua. And he would send them, and they would, he'd start the four, five, six-year-olds off first. They would run shorter route, usually. And then the next three year eight, so seven, eight, nines, and then 10, 11, 12s. And then he had some that were 13, 14, 15. His kids ran. They all participated. He'd start them, and then he would run. If he caught up with you, you had to do 10 push-ups. And they all loved him, and he was very committed to them. His One of the 13-, 14-year-olds that would run was this youngster he didn't know named Lee Malvo. Lee would come from his shack, run and participate. He knew their knew Muhammad's kids. And one day, Lee didn't come to school. He didn't come a second or third day. And Muhammad's kids said to him, Dad, our friend Lee, something's wrong. He had, he's not coming to school. They didn't know where he lived because he would always separate and go to hide in the shack, I guess, and not want to be other kids to see what his conditions were. And Muhammad went. They found him. He literally picked him up. He was quite ill at the time and brought him to their home. And from that point on, Lee stayed with him. And over a period of time, Lee came to call him dad and my father, and he called him my son. And that was the beginning of, the, unfortunately, in many ways, the end. Lee was a wonderful kid. Every person who knew him in, in Jamaica and every kid, every person, adult and kid, that knew him in Antigua described him as just a very kind and giving child. He was impoverished as he could be, but he would share his, offer his lunch to somebody who'd forgotten their lunch or whatever and do without so that they could eat. And his two best friends came and testified. One of them was, I think at that point, 19, and he owned several businesses. He was a really, really bright young man. And the other one was, I think, 20, and he was a doctor in Jamaica. Lee clearly was brainwashed yes. by Muhammad. Yes, I've heard you use the word brainwash numerous times. I've read it in articles. You've been quoted. Let's talk a bit about Lee's confession to the murders. Yes. There was a distinct laugh. Yes. Tell us a bit about that laugh. Well, when Lee was being interviewed, start with this background. Muhammad had directed him. All, all, everything they did was a military mission. And Lee was directed, he was trained as a child soldier by Muhammad, and that's a separate and very interesting, to, at least to me, story on its own. But Muhammad, had, everything was a mission. And Lee was directed, should they be caught, 
that he was to confess to all of being the shooter in all of the shootings that ended up being done by the snipers. And that's what he did. And Muhammad had said, look, they're far less likely to execute a juvenile than they are me. So Virginia has this trigger man statute so that only the person who actually pulls the trigger can be executed. So <clears throat> you confess to all of them, and, and that's what Lee did. He got most everything wrong in his, I mean, he literally did, because on cross-examination, I would say to the detective, so he told you it was a brown car, and it was on this side of the pumps, and he fired this shot, and it hit this location. Yes, 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 yes. And all of those were wrong. Well, yes, all of those were wrong. But he made that confession. But in it, when he would describe when he fired the shot, he would describe how he pulled the trigger and the bullet went and hit the person. And then he would laugh, and it was a very distinctive laugh. It was like, <laughs> just like that. <laughs> and and he, it was so contrary to who he was as a person. It just didn't make any sense. When we listened to that tape, that audio tape, I told my colleagues that were co-counsel in the case, this will kill us. We'll never get to our case, no matter what good evidence we have. When they hear this, without any explanation, this is going to kill him. They're going to vote death as soon as they hear him, as the prosecutor said, chortling about killing people. And we just couldn't figure out how could it be that he would be that insensitive or seemingly just making fun of this. And so we started looking for things. And one of the things we did was go out to find the military. We knew that Muhammad had trained him by a variety of ways, point-and-shoot video games. But he had also had him watch all of the military sniper movies. And some of them were, <clears throat> we got some of them were just how to be a sniper, you know, how you dress, how you disguise yourself, how you coat your the metal parts of your weapon so they don't reflect the sun and those kinds of things. But one was very different from that. It was a fellow named Carlos Heathcock, and he was a Marine sniper in Vietnam and <clears throat> had... 300 and some kills, and I think something above 200 confirmed kills as a sniper. So a tremendous, he's the greatest sniper in the history of the world. He's a great American hero because he did what needed to be done to protect the American troops. And so when we're watching his video, it was different than the others. He was sitting at a, a desk just a chair and him in the desk. And he was speaking to a group of Marines, I guess, who were in some type of auditorium. And so he's talking to them and they're getting, he's getting questions from off camera from these people who are watching him. Interestingly, he had his Virginia license plate because this was at Quantico and that's where he was, was at the time. His Virginia license plate was sniper. That was but his Virginia license plate, when he had it on the corkboard behind him. And when he was talking, he would describe different situations he had run into. And this one thing came from off screen. It said, well, tell us about Whitefeather. Well, Whitefeather was apparently the name of a particular operation where he was called in because there was a North Vietnamese sniper who was brutalizing the American lines. They couldn't get past him. They didn't know where he was, and he was just picking off American troops right and left. And they brought Carlos Heathcock in to try to take out the opposing sniper. And he was there for like three days, and he described what he'd do and how he would do and position himself. And he said, finally, I, saw, I figured out where he was. I saw him shoot. I saw I could tell where he was. And he described how he would <clears throat> position his rifle, and he fired it and watched the bullet. And he said, it didn't help his eyesight much either. And from off screen, what do you mean? He said, the bullet went right into his eye and blew his head apart. <laughs> the exact laugh that Lee had done throughout his 
description of the kills that he had had or claimed to have had. And it was simply clear as day that he is simply emulating the greatest sniper in the world. He had been trained as a sniper by, or at least to shoot, by Muhammad. He had become a sniper through Muhammad. And he saw that as what a sniper does. Now, why Carlos Haithcock would laugh about even the death of an enemy, I think it's a defensive mechanism. You kill that many human beings, it's got to impact you. And all for a righteous cause, I understand, but I think that's why Carlos Haithcock laughed. Lee didn't understand that, but he saw that's what a sniper does when they describe a kill, and that's what he was doing. And when we were able to play that for the jurors, it was like watching light bulbs come on in their eye because they immediately heard that laugh and realized what had occurred in terms of his imitating and emulating Carlos Haithcock. That distinct laugh was so powerful for your case. Heathcock's distinct laugh was very powerful for you yes. because that fit the theory of the defense that this young kid was brainwashed and he was brainwashed by Muhammad, not only by, through the use of video games and then target practice and that the targets uh, were replicas of human heads, yes. but then watching the greatest sniper in American history. That distinct laugh was not the only thing that was also depictive of how brainwashed and how easily influenced was this kid. Tell us a bit about how Lee was dressed in court <laughs> and how did he come across to the jury? Well, Lee never testified. Lee dissociated to a great extent. He just was present. He was a tremendous sketch artist. They didn't allow videoing or photographs in the courtroom. So we had all these different, all the different news agencies had their sketch artists there to do things. Lee was better than any of them. And he would just draw, he'd draw jurors, he'd draw people that were the deputies, and draw Judge Roush. Uh, it was, that's what he would do. He would just kind of zone out. And uh, we needed to present him and I thought we needed to present him as a kid because he was a kid. He was 17 at the time of the offenses, but he wasn't greatly socialized. He wasn't as worldly as most American kids are or were. He was described as an American kid from the 40s. If adults were talking, he was silent unless he was spoken to, didn't talk unless he was spoken to. If a woman walked in the room, he stood. He was extremely courteous. He was extremely pleasant kid, but he knew his place. And if Muhammad was carrying on a conversation with somebody, you did not hear from Lee. And that's just kind of how he was. So he came across as a kid to the jury. And we wanted him to. We, we actually had a discussion. I think that's what you're asking me about. <laughs> where the attorneys sat down and we debated, how do we dress this kid? If you put him in a three-piece suit, that was not Lee, and it made him look something different than what he was. We jokingly talked about putting him with a great big lollipop, but that never came about. I wanted us to dress him as a high school kid, jeans or slacks, sweater type of approach, and that's ultimately what we went with. There was actually a discussion because most of us who try cases or people who are in court, we would see teenagers come in in our regular practices, and their parents had said, you got to dress up. And they would come in in a suit that was like five sizes too big for them because it was their grandfather's suit, but it was the only suit they had access to. The family didn't, maybe didn't have money to buy a suit. So you'd see this kid come in and with these, everything too long, the sleeves are too long, the pants are all bunched up at the bottom. And we talked about, well, we could do that because that really makes, when you see a kid dressed like that, you think, that's a kid. He's in a suit, <laughs> but he's a kid. And we thought about doing that, but we thought, well, it's going to be too obvious <laughs> if we did that. This is, <laughs> these people are too sophisticated to realize that, hey, we 
could have dressed him differently. So we dressed him as a teenager, and he was comfortable with that. And my wife actually did most of the picking out of the specifics, and we bought him and took him to Lee, and we'd trade him out every day, trade out his clothes every day. So I actually uh, was in middle school in Fairfax when this happened. And I remember, I mean, being shut down. I remember not being allowed outside. It was certainly a scary time. And I am confident there have been people who've asked you, this was a horrendous, horrendous crime. It shut down a part of this country for quite a while. Why did you defend him? And I know that's a question that I'm sure have been asked about this case and have been asked about all the clients that you've represented. And I'd certainly love to hear your answer. Well, and I think it's something that non- attorneys and probably non-trial lawyers don't fully grasp, but the best way for our system to work is for both sides to be properly and and passionately represented by an advocate. And my job is not to establish somebody's innocence. My job is to point out that the prosecution has not proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt, or in a case where there's no real issue about guilt— to present as much appropriate mitigation evidence, things that would show up a juror why this person was deserving of a lesser penalty. And I also felt, as I commented earlier, extremely, I felt like the representation of juveniles charged with an offense for which they could be executed was probably the most important work that I could do. And so I was very committed to that. Now, in Lee's case, he was, like you suggested, these were horrendous crimes. They were horrible, innocent people. There, were these, there was no person who was killed or shot that had done anything wrong to anybody, to my knowledge. They were simply brutal acts to make an impact upon the community as designed by Muhammad. And so I went to see Lee Malvo for the first time, and I had an expectation that I was walking in to see a little monster. I knew he wasn't a real large fellow. He was 5'3 and weighed about 110, 115 at that point in time. And what I encountered was just a kid that was just like anybody else. And he was courteous. He was polite. He stood when, when I came in. He was in a house by himself in a section of the Fairfax jail, in the basement of the Fairfax jail. And he was responsive. He was, it was just not what I was expecting. And that made it easier because he was a very pleasant and respectful person. Never criticized us. He was appreciative of our efforts. The only thing that he would react to negatively was if you criticized John Muhammad, which he saw as a criticism of his father at the beginning. And he wouldn't be smart aleck. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't say anything negative to you. He would simply shut down. He simply would stop communicating. He would listen, but he wouldn't interact. And so we learned Early on, we had to find a way to get past that because clearly we knew what had happened. We could tell what had happened. The people from Jamaica and Antigua had pretty much told us what was had occurred. So we knew we had a lot of favorable mitigation if we could get it out. And what we did, we were granted enough, a lot of hours for investigators. So we had three investigators. One was a lady named Carmita Alberas. Carmita ran a mitigation organization in, from Harlem. Her husband was on U staff. She had been a teacher in Jamaica. She was Jamaican. And uh, she said, I want to meet him. I don't want to just go out and interview other people. I want to meet him. I think I can help you with that regard. And I took Carmita in with me to, to meet Lee. And she was culturally with him. She was a Jamaican. She had taught in Jamaica. They started talking Patois. I have no idea what they said. They could have been bad-mouthing me, but they never acted like they were. And she was able to break 
over a long period of time, months and months and months, she was able to break that bond or at least separate, begin the separation process from Muhammad. And she would say, what did John Muhammad tell you? And he'd say, well, he said that the white people control the world and they do these things. And he took Lee to places like, if you're in this area, to Windsor Farms, to Moreland Farms, and said, now, look at the size of these homes. Look at the beautiful places here. And look at the complexion of the people who are coming in and out of those. Now, let's go down to Gilpin Court and look at the housing there. And what's the complexion of the people going in there? And pointing out the disparities in American culture. And he did the same in Baltimore and a number of other places, showing him it's not just here, it's wherever. I can't say did that in Richmond. I'm using that as an example. And so Lee would start making these statements to Carmita. Well, this is how it is, and this is how it is. And she said, wait a minute. You and I are both from Jamaica. There's no white people there. They're not telling you what you have to do, and they're not controlling your life. And he would have to stop and think about that because he was hearing it from somebody that he had come to respect and somebody that he appreciated her attention to him. And she was very, and still is, very devoted to Lee. And over a period of time, she was able to get him to recognize that how what had happened, that, that his father had absolutely destroyed his life and had misled him in all of these different things. He honestly believed when they were doing the shootings that it was for the greater good that they were going to basically keep this up until the big boys, the powerful people of government and of society, would pay them $10 million and they would put it into ATMs where they could stop and get the money anytime they wanted. And then they were going to set up, according to Muhammad, a utopian society in Canada. And they were going to bring 70 boys and 70 girls from around the world bring them to this utopian society, and they were going to be a self-sustaining community. And that's, that's what Lee believed. And he was convinced that what they were doing was to get the attention of the big boys. And he was right. It got the attention. Muhammad was right that it got the attention of everybody. Just as you said, all of us were dodging around when we were pumping gas because that's where a lot of the shootings occurred, and you suddenly don't want to be standing still while you're pumping gas. Not far from here, Sharif, they thought they had seen these snipers at a gas station off Broad Street. Right. Well, if I remember correctly, weren't there roadblocks? There were, I mean, it, they, they it were, changed. They, they, that was true. They actually made the call to Sheriff Moose, I believe his name was, who was head of one of the departments of in Montgomery County, perhaps Maryland, and had become quite a public figure. But they called him and basically said, your children are not safe, something along that line. And they made that call from a payphone at Broad and Parham Road, an Exxon station. And then they drove off. And two young Hispanic fellows came up to use the phone. And all of a sudden, the entire law enforcement community of all the cities and counties around here descended upon them and I'm sure terrorized them, and they did nothing wrong but go to use the phone. And finally, they realized they had the wrong people. Ironically enough, Dr. Gouley, shortly after that call, we also got a knock on our door, my parents' house. I was the one who opened the door, and my father at the time did festivals, so we had a yellow pickup truck in our backyard. And there was, of course, be on a lookout for yellow pickup trucks. So there was two FBI agents that wanted, asked us if they could search this yellow pickup truck. And we were like, of course, please do. <laughs> so myself and my older brother, we walk to the backyard with them and open up, unlock the back door to the pickup truck, roll up the door, and they found some restaurant equipment. <laughs> so they let us go. <laughs> so it was a crazy time. Now, sir, you are a well-known name, and I think most people know that you didn't retire after this case. In fact, you're still going. 
you are still knocking down juries month after month. And in fact, I remember you having a debate with Judge Harris and Henrika saying, it's my last jury. And Judge Harris like, hey, it ain't your last jury. And it hasn't been your last jury. I no. forgot which case that was, but you're still doing it. What is driving you to continue to do this hard, difficult, stressful work? Well, I will tell you that I am, I have said I'm going to retire. But when I say retire, I mean, I want to go from 80, 90 to 100 hours a week down to 35 or 40 hours a week. That's so just to a spend. normal human workload? Well, is that, that? That, I've, worked, <laughs> I've worked a lot more hours for, for many, many decades at this point, and I do want to try to slow down. The problem I'm having is an awful lot of people have helped me as my career has progressed. Deputy clerks, clerks, deputy sheriffs, secretaries to the prosecutor's office, Lots and lots of people have made my life a lot easier by simply being courteous and kind to me and helping me when I needed it. And when they come to me and their son or their child, grandchild, has gotten into some kind of problem, traffic or criminal, whatever it might be, it's impossible for me to be able to say to them, you know, all the good things you did to help me, I I just can't help you. I'm sorry, I'm stopping. I mean, that's you just can't do that. I mean, it's it's contrary to who I am. It's contrary to what we ought to be. Not that I'm an example of what we ought to be. Goodness knows I'm not. But that's the way I see it. And it's and I get a lot of folks that have been kind to me, and and they, as do we all, needed something, and they come to me and I'm trying to help them. But it just keeps. Prog- prolonging my... Now, let me ask. So it's clear to me, and I think it's clear to most people who know you and know of you, that you're very passionate about the purpose behind the work that you do. Let's talk about the actual trial. Do you enjoy the trial? Do you enjoy being in that courtroom in front of a jury? Absolutely. And why? Preparation is not so much fun. Not fun at all. But once you're there, the trials, particularly criminal trials, are great theater That sounds funny to say, but it is human life, human drama playing out in a theater that is a courtroom. And if you are a trial lawyer, you not only get to watch it and appreciate it, you get to tweak it. You ask a question that drives it this way or a different question that drives it the other way, and you can manipulate the reactions and such by your questions or demeanor in the courtroom, whatever it might be. And I do. My life in a courtroom has been fun. I mean, stressful, (laughs) but it's fun. I mean, it is for me to be able to challenge to. It's it's a form of debate, if you will. I'm sure I was not a good debater, but I'm being able to cross-examine somebody that you know has gotten up there and fibbed, that you know you have the ability to demonstrate their credibility is not worthy of a jury to consider. I had a couple of occasions where I've had witnesses that were so bad for the prosecution, that were so clearly fibbing on almost everything, sometimes even their name, you know, they 15 aliases, but they're using this one today. And I would ask them before I finished the cross-examination, could you turn your profile to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury for identification purposes? And they would, they'd turn their profile so that the jury could see from the side. And then when I would get to closing argument, I would say to the jury, you remember I asked Mr. Such and Such to turn his profile to you. And that's because I was pretty sure that his nose had grown about that much. And I would throw <laughs> oh my, my hand out. And they would laugh because they knew he was not a credible witness. And, and they would hold that against the prosecution for putting up that they could clearly see was not being truthful with him, trying to con them. And a lot of snitch witnesses, that's exactly what they're doing. They're getting rewarded by having their sentences reduced or not being sentenced at all to any active time in exchange for, in some cases, fibbing. I mean, I'm not suggesting prosecutors intentionally put somebody up to lie. That's not 
been my experience. We are very blessed with very honorable people on both sides, the prosecution and defense. And that's something that Virginia has over many, many states. We have a very collegial criminal bar, both prosecutors and defense. They're honorable people. They go to battle. It's not a question of are they passionate in their position in the courtroom, but they are honest in their approach and they are ethical people. You have a special skill to connecting to people. What is it? I often tell my students that if you come across as an attorney, you failed in the courtroom. You got to come across as a teacher. Is it your five years of teaching? What is it? How are you able to connect to other humans? Well, there's several things. To the extent I can, I, I appreciate your compliment, but I'm not sure that's that accurate. But I, I have taught. I taught five years in high school. I taught undergraduate at the University of Richmond. I taught at the law school. So I have, a, to a certain extent, a professorial delivery, I think. And when I'm talking to a jury, I try to educate. The other thing is that I think the greatest— we as a profession have and we as individual attorneys have is we are very susceptible to arrogance. And I understand that my colleagues at the bar and I are blessed with an education that if you look at the total population of the world, we are probably among the top 4% of educated people in the world. So there are reasons why people take pride, but arrogance doesn't play well. I'm blessed that I don't have much reason to have any arrogance, so it works out fine for me. I mean, I, I know what I can do. I know what I can't do. I recognize my human frailties, and I do my best to fight back against arrogance. Again, I'm blessed in a sense that I don't have a lot of reasons to be arrogant. There are attorneys that have skill levels that would justify them being arrogant, but it doesn't play well any anywhere. It doesn't play well in a marriage. It doesn't play well in the community. It doesn't play well in the courtroom. And I try to be cognizant of that when I'm practicing my craft in the courtroom. And it's easy for me because that's, you were kind enough to say, refer to me as a great, well, if great is a synonym for geezer, then maybe so. In terms of longevity, maybe so. But in terms of skill level, you look around, and in this area, we have a tremendous number of really high-quality, highly skilled trial lawyers, and there are probably at least 75 to 100 in this area that on any given day could properly lay claim to being the best attorney in the state on that day, and many of them on many, many days they could qualify. So I'm fully cognizant of my failings and my areas that I lack skill and also try to remember that the people we're trying to persuade, they're not dummies. I mean, some of them are. Some attorneys are dummies, really. But they're just trying to do it right. And if you treat them with respect, if you acknowledge that they're the trier of fact, the case ultimately is theirs to decide, and you don't do things that offend them, your client has a better chance of coming out better, not necessarily a win. When you're a criminal defense attorney, you measure wins differently than other people do. Your client may be convicted. In Lee Malvo's case, he didn't get the death penalty. There was no question he was involved in the shootings, no question he did some of the shootings. And to get a unanimous verdict against executing a juvenile was, in my mind, a win. I mean, it, but it, if you look at the one loss, we lost. I mean, that's the way it is. And you've got to learn to accept that. Is there a certain part of trial that you enjoy the most or— a certain part that you think is most important? Some people say, oh, it's closing. Some people say, well, you can win an opening. Some people are like, no, 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 be quiet. It's voir dire. You got to do it in voir dire. Yeah. I think we all probably all around this table would agree that 
got to be good at all. But when you're approaching a trial, where are you putting your emphasis? Opening statement controls the case. Voir dire is a great way to lead into your opening statement. And I used to be horrible at voir dire. Didn't want to do it. Was glad to get past it. Voir dire is the questioning of jurors to see if they're going to be selected for the jury. But I learned that is a great opportunity to sell yourself is not exactly the right phrase, but to let the jury know that you're not there as an enemy. Let the jury know that you are there to help them through this process and to a certain extent educate them. And I find I can get them to participate in that by certain things that I'll talk about in terms of burden of proof and presumption of innocence and such, and you can actually get them to feel like they're participating in it, and that's in voir dire. But then opening statement is your opportunity to lay out exactly what you think the evidence is going to be that's favorable to you and that offsets the prosecution's evidence and demonstrates that they do not have the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, or in some cases, to put as much mitigation into that part of the case as you can. So I'm convinced that opening statement controls, because from the beginning, if they are leaning your way because of that opening statement, psychologists will tell you that you're much more likely to win if they start leaning to you from the beginning. You see, what we hear first, we tend to believe, which gives the prosecution the benefit of the first opening statement. But if you can lay it out for them, from the beginning and they start to lean toward you, it's hard to turn the jury around. Either way, if you lose them at opening statement, it's very difficult to bring them back. Sure, if we talk a lot about building credibility with the jury, because as you're picking the jury, they're picking a side. So you build credibility and then you deliver your message. You put the lens on that you want the jury to see your case through. Very well stated. And, yes. and that's, you know, that yeah. we, we believe that the opening is, is just so powerful. Yeah. I mean, credibility controls, right? And I'm sure, sir, you can attribute that to a lot of your success. It's funny when I now introduced me to you or spoke about you when I first joined the Henrico prosecutor's office, I said, well, what is it about Craig Cooley that makes him pull off all these results? I might butcher this, but Niall said that if it's a sunny day outside, but Craig Cooley tells the judge that it's raining, the judge believes that it's raining. And that's just because of the incredible amount of credibility that you've built up. I did not know Niall was that easily conned. Okay. (laughs) You know, I understand your point and I understand his point when he told you that. You gain credibility by not pushing the envelope too far. So... If you can go to the window and look out and it's raining, but I said it was sunny or vice versa, you've lost credibility. Of course. But having credibility with the judges is something that takes a long time to gain, and you can lose it very quickly with a misstatement, a intentional misrepresentation. And every lawyer has to be very diligent and being sure that any representation they make to the court is as accurate as you know it to be at the time. And there are times when you say something, you believe it to be true. Both sides do that, and then later it turns out that's not accurate. Judges understand that. Jurors understand that. But if you want credibility with the judges and with jurors, you have to be honest. And when there's a point that is made by the other side in the courtroom— and they're right. When the judge says, Mr. Cooley, what do you think about that? You say, Judge, I think he or she is right. I think the prosecutor is right on that. And sometimes people will laugh because they don't expect that to be, you know, you conceded something, but you gain credibility with that. And if it's an honest answer, it's what it ought, what it ought to be. In addition to other trial attorneys listening to this, there's a number of people who are in law school hoping to become trial attorneys or who in other legal jobs who may have seen the movie To Kill a Mockingbird or A Few Good Men Like Me and said, I want to be an attorney. I want to be a trial attorney. But the loans, the high-paying corporate job took them astray. If you could offer those people some advice, both the people who are in law school trying to become trial attorneys and the people who 
may have wanted to, but haven't made that jump to do it, what would you tell them? I would tell them, one, now everybody's got to follow your own passion. So if your passion is you want to deal with bankruptcy, if your passion is that that you want to do domestic relations, God bless you. Go where your heart takes you. But don't let the decision be purely on money. If you want to have fun, come into the the criminal side of practice, prosecutor or defense. It is more fun. The collegiality is greater. Now, the money is, you're absolutely correct. I mean, we somewhat starved for a number of probably decades in comparison. If you want to see the difference between what lawyers can make money-wise, go downtown Richmond and see what the elevator you take up to, to the 12th or 15th or 18th floor is more valuable than my entire career, <laughs> the cost of that for a law firm. And when they were starting, when I came through, they were starting first-year associates at $230,000, $240,000. And I think the first week we started practice in May and the three fellows, I think we collectively had about 7000 each was our gross. That wasn't our profit. That was our gross. And when I started, a court-appointed attorneys were paid $50 for a felony, $25 for a misdemeanor. It didn't matter how many hours. The first 25 to 30 capital cases I did, the fee was $400, capped at $400. You spent more money on Xeroxing than you got paid for the case. Melvin Hughes and I tried the three trials in the Browley trials, and we got $400 each. And some judges split the 400 between people. But we got 400 each. The trials were like four or five days. And the court reporter who typed up the transcript was paid $19,000. I remember that because I'm going, something's wrong. <laughs> something's wrong yeah. with it. And then they jumped our fee to 600 for a capital case. It capped it at 600 And then the last maybe 20-some I did, they had moved to a, I think it was, an hour, maybe $125 an hour, and you were paid by the hour. But the Supreme Court would cut your pay if the judge gave you what you really had earned at that rate. The Supreme Court often came in and penciled some of it off. So it's not the big grossing income that civil attorneys can make. Their clients pay and can pay a lot more to them to do their work than our clients can. And if you do it out of an appreciation that the system works only if you have quality advocacy on both sides. And so you do the same work for $50 that somebody else may do for $25,000. And that's literally the difference at times. Dr. Cooley, a lot of our questions have been backward looking about your upbringing, your profession, provided professional experience, and your cases. Fast forward 20 years from now. From now? From now. You paid your debt to society, that debt that Mr. Cooley brought up when you first started your job as a high school teacher. Looking back at your profession, how would you describe it to your grandson or to one of your kids or to someone that walks up to you and says, you know what? Have you, in fact, made whole in your debt to society? I think I'm still working on that. Uh, I think I've made some fairly substantial inroads to that. There's a many decades old song sung by the the Man of La Mancha, and it's done by the Ms. Ross and the the name of the, how can I forget that? It's, I believe, two... Motown groups, female, Diana Ross and the Supremes, and they are singing with um, a male group, and they sing Man of La Mancha. And that was, 
the greatest motivator to me, you know, that one man scorned and covered with scars still strove with his last ounce of courage to right the unrightable wrong, was prepared to march into hell for a heavenly cause, all of the things that are in the lyrics to that. And when I was on my way to jury trials, I would put in, it was a, it wasn't a disc, it was the old eight-track tape, and I would push it into my player in the car and turn it up as loud as I could, and it, my inspiration, so by the time I got to the courthouse, I was like a fired-up boxer, <laughs> and uh, so I envisioned myself that when laid to rest, I will hopefully lie peaceful and calm, as that song suggests you should. Dr. Cooley, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down with us. The hallways that you've walked, the attorneys that have witnessed you practice in the Commonwealth of Virginia, they all try to take a thing or two from Dr. Cooley. And it's the way he carries himself. It's the calling each other doctors, the better than I deserve. You've elevated the practice of law in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So we want to thank you for being with us today. And I'm sure I'll be seeing you in court. We will still be duking it out, and I expect nothing but greatness. Thank you, sir. This has been truly a pleasure. Thank you both. A privilege for us. Thank you both. I am surprised you are so easily conned, but thank you for the kind words and always enjoy seeing both of you. Thank you for listening to RBA Trial Lawyers, Richmond's Trial Lawyer Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Camaraderie and mentorship are essential to success as a trial lawyer. For that reason, RBA Trial Lawyers maintains a LinkedIn group for Richmond's trial lawyers. We invite you to join the RBA Trial Lawyer community. Check out our website at rbatriallawyers.com for more information. Thanks again for listening. We appreciate you, and we appreciate the important work that you do.